morning, family. Um, Wow, it's really good to be here, isn't it? And I hope your Thanksgiving was rich, rich with giving thanks, um, rich with family and friends and gratitude, especially for all that God is giving us and doing for us and his kindness toward us, and more importantly, who he is. We're going to be getting into the last of the messages in this series we've called Erosion, themes out of the book of Isaiah, and I would encourage you to turn your Bible open to Isaiah chapter 40. One of the great texts in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. If you did not bring a Bible, there's some provided for you in front of you there, and um, you'll find that on page 599, starting on page 599. So we've been in this wonderful series that has been focusing in on the things that can rob us, that can erode the foundations of our faith and rob us of our passion for the Lord, our perspective on who he is and what he's doing with us. And uh, it's been rich. And I'm here to give you good news. We're not done with Isaiah yet. We're going to take the whole Advent season leading up to Christmas and speak about some of those powerful themes in the book of Isaiah that point to the Messiah, that point to God's great plan for the ages to bring us salvation. So um, that's to come. Now, a bit of background in Isaiah chapter 40. And before I even mention that, I want to give you a heads up. At the end of the message, we're going to encourage people to come up here and give one sentence We'll have an open mic. It's going to be placed right here. And give one sentence, something that deeply, that you deeply appreciate about the character of God, okay? Not about our church or not about, you know, all the things that you have or any of that stuff, but about the character of God. This is a text, Isaiah chapter 40, that aims at that, our perspective on who God is. So we're going to ask you to do that in just one sentence. I know it's going to be really difficult for some of you, but that will give us an opportunity to share. So Isaiah chapter 40, and here's some background information about the morning's text. So if you're familiar a little bit with the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 1 through 39, chapters 1 through 39 can be looked at as one big section of the book. And here in chapter 40, it's like he's turning a page. Chapter 1 through 39 really was addressing all the things that had eroded people's faith led them away from the Lord and robbed them of their walk with him and their perspective of following him. And in 1 through 39, it was a trumpet call warning the people of Israel, God's people, about their need to put their full confidence in him and about their all-encompassing brokenness and the rift that had been caused because of their brokenness and sin, walking away from the Lord, the rift between themselves and God and his good plan for them. And while there are glimpses of hope in 1 through 39, the message is really convicting and primarily focused on failure and disobedience of a people who stopped prioritizing God and placed other idols and other things and other people in front of who the Lord was. And in history, all those things that Isaiah pointed to, the warnings he sounded out in chapters 1 through 39 of Isaiah, they came true. They came to fruition. With Judah... And Jerusalem and the temple in ruins behind them, the people were marched off to Babylon into exile and displaced from their home in the promised land. And while they were there in exile, they lost perspective. They lost touch with who God was and his great plan for them. And Isaiah 40 turns the page. It looks forward to what healing and restoration could be like. And it tells a people who had been humbled and disciplined that in spite of 
And in the midst of human heartache and disappointment, the Lord continues to be the God who speaks and acts. That is profoundly good news. That in the middle of our displacement, in the middle even of those seasons of life where we don't experience the presence of God or where we've walked away from him, God still speaks and acts. He's still present. He's still active, regardless of what's going on in our heart. And when he does speak and act, we can discover something breathtaking, actually, that although the Lord's power is unimaginably great, it's revealed in his care. And that's the message of this chapter. It's revealed in his caring love for us, his people. And here in Isaiah 40, the Lord exerts it. You'll see statements about his great sovereignty and his power and his dominion. But it's all rooted not in violence or destruction, but in his comfort. And in this word, the Lord seeks through the words of Isaiah to change a people's perspective, a people who had turned away from him. And in doing so, lost perspective. They had lost sight about who God was. And because that had happened, they had lost sight of who they were. And that's precisely why the text means so much to us. I believe that we, you and I, okay, I'll just speak for myself, that I live in a culture that's lost perspective. It's lost perspective on who God is. And because of that, it's lost perspective on who we are. My culture, it doesn't know God and doesn't acknowledge him. And much like Israel and Isaiah's day, there's this profound confusion about who we are as a people. Why? Well, that's because people cannot truly know who they are apart from knowing God. Let me say that again just so it gets inside of our skin. People can't really know who they are without knowing God. You don't know who you are in relationship to the Most High God. and You don't know who you are in relationship to his world, to the cosmos, to his plan for us. And those powerful words that we're going to see here in Isaiah chapter 40, they readjust our perspective. I was having breakfast this morning and doing all the things that I do in the morning, getting ready for to come to church. And, and all of a sudden, out of the corner of my eye, I saw something outside. It's just like glow. And I go outside. Anybody see the sunrise this morning? Wow, it was fantastic. It was stunning and amazing. And I just, I went outside after I was thinking about all these detailed stuff, and I was just like, Wow, Lord, you are so great. That's Isaiah 40. It's a perspective changer when we look at the majesty, the greatness of God. So the passage begins with specific language. It's a language that's couched in covenant. Covenant being God's agreement that he would bless his people if they would be faithful and obey him and follow him. And this language here in Isaiah 40 is covenant language. It's echoed in Jeremiah 7 and in Exodus chapter 6. Isaiah begins with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And those phrases, my people and your God, are perspective reminders. They point to the covenant of God's people. They're saying, first and foremost, we belong to him, and he alone is our God. And that's what they'd forgotten. I'm going to repeat that just so it gets inside of us this morning. And you recall that. You remember who you are. First and foremost, you belong to him. 
you're his. If you've taken a step and committed your life to walk with the Lord, regardless of what you're doing right now, regardless of what you're involved with or the priority you're placing him in, you're his. You're eternally his child. You belong to him. And he alone is our God, regardless of how you're treating him. We can't lose sight of that fact. So in the early days of the synagogue, this text, Isaiah 40, was used as one of seven prophecies of consolation. There were words of comfort. It was woven into their liturgy as they reminded themselves of God's enduring fondness. And that's actually a really good thing to remember for us this morning as we think about this text. That the almighty God that Isaiah is describing here in chapter 40 is actually fond of us. Not just that he has amazing love, astonishing love for us, which is great, right? We all revel in that and love that. But he actually likes us. He likes spending time with us. He looks forward to that. And the fondness of God is what they were reminding the people of. Chapter two, or verse 2 in chapter 40, Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I want you to consider first, before we consider that tricky thing that they just said at the very end of that verse, about who initiates, right? Who is it that is initiating forgiveness and restoration? It's the Lord, right? It wasn't the people. It was the Lord, the one who always initiates in my relationship. It's God who is the initiator. And he's initiating even though he's the one who's been sinned against. It's always our loving father who steps in to heal, to restore, to forgive and pardon and cleanse and help us walk with him whole again. He ends the conflict right here. Now, what about that curious phrase at the end where it says that Israel received double the punishment of their sins? Is that, is that accurate? Or is Isaiah using poetic language here? Well, like the prophet Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 16, 18, though God's judgment feels harsh, it's always just. And as Paul writes in Romans 6, 23, the wages or the just penalty for my sin is, yeah, it's death. It's the worst possible consequence I can imagine. It's death. But, Paul writes, what? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is, God initiates pardon, and even though I deserve the worst, he steps in and says, no, I'm going to initiate your cleansing and wholeness because you're my people. I love you, and I am your God. Verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Isaiah is painting this picture of this straight road that leads from Babylon all the way through the Syrian desert all the way back home, and it's straight, and it's easy to travel. And look where this road is leading, verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The Bible tells us that when the temple was destroyed, God withdrew his presence from Jerusalem and the temple, Ezekiel chapter 10. 
And as a result, the people have been living their lives with no real sense of what we talked about last week, the glorious presence of God. The Lord felt distant to them, and many had questioned his existence. But now, once more, Isaiah is saying, you're going to experience him fully. His presence, the goodness of his glory. He returns to that theme in Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 66 as well. Now, notice that this mind-blowing revelation of the glory of God is a gift to all people. God's revelation was not just for Judah and Jerusalem, but it was for all people as one are to see it. The good news, we're told, is for all people. Everyone can experience God and his glory. Now, there's some really fascinating layers to those verses there in verse 3 through 5. Um, John Calvin says, actually, it captures the, all of the essence of the gospel in just a few sentences, which is interesting, right? The, the writers Matthew in Matthew chapter 3 and Mark, Mark 1, Luke chapter 3 and John chapter 1, all the gospel writers quote this text. And they quote it applying to John the Baptist's mission to prepare the way for Jesus who would make a way for the salvation of all people. That is, in Jesus, the glory of the Lord would truly be revealed and all people would find the glory of God. Now, isn't it fascinating that Isaiah is writing these words 700 years before that happened, that event? But all the gospel writers saw in those inspired words from Isaiah, this is what the Lord is talking about. This great word. Verse 6, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? Here's the message. All flesh is like grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and when the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He's giving this picture of this hot desert wind. They're all familiar with it. That would sweep in and all of a sudden everything would be brown like the hills out there. But they're not brown right now, are they? They're turning green. Isn't that cool? But it's just like that what happens on a hot day in Livermore, right? All of a sudden things turn brown. Life is quick that way, he's saying. I was with some friends last night, actually here at church, and um, we're talking about our kids growing up and when we look in the mirror that things have changed and how fast life is traveling for us. And it was a great discussion, and I was reminded again of this great text that reminds us here that even though you might be good looking now, it's going to change, right? And it changes rapidly. And then you're left to wonder what really lasts What's foundational for who I am? What, what lasts for me? Where's the source of my hope? What should I really be counting on? And Isaiah is reminding them that it is this word from the Lord, the covenant God that's always been faithful, who's always called you back. You're his, and his word is dependable. It always lasts through the ages. It never fades. Verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the good news. Lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold, your God. Say to other people around you, look at who God is. Acknowledge him. Know him. Verse 10, behold, the Lord God comes with might, 
and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Here's this wonderful picture of this God of all power stepping in and being the shepherd, right? It's a reminder, actually, those words are echoed in Ezekiel chapter 34. And it probably reminded some of you of those great words in Psalm 23, that the Lord is our shepherd. That is, he is kind to us. God is fond of us. And he cares tenderly for us. Isn't that remarkable? Now Isaiah asks a series of rhetorical questions, starting in verse 12, that help Israel and in turn us consider changing our perspective, thinking differently about who we are and our place in this world. Verse 12, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Have you been to the beach recently? Or been out on the water and considered how amazingly large the oceans are? Or have you looked up on a clear night and seen the spectacular vastness of all the heavens? And that's astonishing, isn't it? You're made to feel small. And Isaiah says, now think about this. Now, this is a span right here from here to here. And that's God measuring it. Right? Just, just that way. It's small to him. It's tiny to him. All the vastness of the cosmos. Think differently, Isaiah is saying, about who God is, his vastness. Think deeper. Here is God measuring it all out. It's as if Isaiah is reminding us that our view of God is far too small. And closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. Who does that? The creator and sustainer of the universe is the answer, right? That's the only answer. What seems unfathomable to us is microscopically small to him. That's Isaiah's message to us. Verse 13. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Hey, God, I've got a better idea. Ever feel that in your heart? Yeah. The question that he asks, Isaiah asks here, reminds me of this really beautiful prayer that Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 2, where she says, There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Isaiah continues, verse 14. Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? To what school did God go to to get so intelligent? How does your perspective of who he is become so diminished? Notice there's two poles as Isaiah starts to ask these questions and answer them about who God is and about God's handiwork that he addresses. First, it's the beginning, the majesty, the overwhelming greatness of his creation. And then the other pole that Scripture speaks of, the end, the end game, 
our redemption and wholeness and cleansing. Verse 15, And behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel. He's saying, the densest forest that you know of, a whole country that has this great forest, that would not be enough to give him an adequate fire for a sacrifice that you might offer to him. Nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Verse 17, all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Israel had seen the great armies of the day. They had experienced them, the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians. And yet he's saying, all those armies combine power at their height. It's nothing like the power of the Almighty God. Change the way that you think, your perspective. Verse 18, and to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? When you think of God, what do you think of? What do you compare God to? Is he an idol? He asks in verse 19. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for silver chains. And I was wondering, what's the deal with the chains thing in that text? But here's what it was. Those chains were to keep the idol stabilized so it wouldn't topple over. And Isaiah is making that little statement for us to realize that yeah, how good of a God is that? That can be thrown over or fall over or tip over. And why do you compare human things to who God is? Why do you keep doing that? He's the creator and the rock. Verse 20, he who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. And he seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. But that's thwarted, Right? in the face of who God is. In verses 15 through 20, they resonate with this message that Jeremiah 10 speaks out. And I wanted to read these words just to underscore what Isaiah is saying. In Jeremiah chapter 10, a tree from the forest is cut down and worked with an axe by the hands of a craftsman. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with a hammer and nails so that it cannot move. Their idols are like scarecrows in a cucumber field. And they cannot speak. They have to be carried, for they cannot walk. Do not be afraid of them, for they, do not, they cannot do evil. Neither is it in them to do good. There is none like you, O Lord. You're great, and your name is great in might. Who would not fear you, O King of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations, and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. There's none like him. Isaiah continues this onslaught of questions intended to challenge our perspective. Verse 21, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? The Hebrew literally says there, have you not understood the foundations of all things? The foundation of the earth itself. Don't you know that God alone is your foundation? That's what he's saying. Verse 22, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. It's a visual image for them. Isaiah 66. 
and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spread, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has the stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. The series of questions that Isaiah is asking are the most important questions that we can ask ourselves. Who do you compare God with? The obvious, logical response, the biblical response to that is, I better not compare him to anyone because he is incomparable. But that's not how we subconsciously answer the question at times. Too often, I place other things on the pedestal as a priority. Too often, I think about other things or think about my boss Or think about the demands of school. Or think about other things that are capturing my attention. And my attention, my priorities go there. I don't live in awe of him. I I cease doing that. Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created all these? And who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Reminds me of of Psalm 147. The Holy One and His unparalleled uniqueness. And when you get to a place where you can look up and see that, perspective changes. When you see Him for who He is. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak out, O Israel, verse 27, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. God doesn't see me. He doesn't care about me. Why do you respond that way to a God who has forever loved you, who is caring for you and fond of you? Why would you ask that question? Is it so easy to do in the face of difficulty to leave the one who you need most? Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Romans 1 says, every person knows in their heart who God is. That this is the one, as I've been reminding, as Isaiah 40 has been speaking about, this is the incomparable God who loves us and calls us to relationship. Remind yourself of this good truth. Why are you living your life as if it's not true? Why wouldn't you come and rejoice in his character, his nature, and his goodness? All these probing and challenging questions are meant to lead us someplace incredibly important. They are meant to lead us to a place where we place our full confidence in the Lord Almighty where we would put all our confidence in him and nothing else. And that's why Isaiah keeps asking these questions and getting our perspective changed. And then Isaiah ends this wonderful text with this greatly encouraging passage that many of us love, cherish, starting in verse 29. He gives power to the faint 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But what? They who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. When you are at the very end of all your energy and resources, God is not. He's not. And he's the one, the living almighty God who loves you and seeks to comfort you, who loves to pour out his strength to you when you feel weak, when you are at the end of all things. That's why the end of Isaiah 40 is so phenomenal, right? Because Isaiah's reminded people to change their perspective on who God is. I hope that you are able to live this week, this Thanksgiving week, with a thankfulness for his great nature and character beyond all the stuff that he does for us, right? Thank you for listening to the Bridges Community Church Sermon Podcast. Bridges Community Church is located in the San Francisco Bay Area in Fremont, California. To know more about Bridges Community Church, please go to our website at bridgescc.org.